This morning's scripture reading is, this morning's scripture reading is taken from two of Paul's letters. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. For whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so, somehow, attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Now that I have already, not that I have already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. This one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. We're now in the sixth and final week of this winter sermon series we've been in on the fruit of the Spirit, looking at this classic list uh, that is given to us in Galatians 5 by Paul of, of these character qualities that should describe a person who has God in their life. So we've talked about love, we've talked about joy, peace, patience, faithfulness, gentleness. And this morning, to close things out, we've come to the last quality on the list, which is the quality of self-control. Now, right away, this one sounds, just on a surface level, it sounds different than all the others. It's the only hyphenated term in the list. It's the only one that's sort of technical sounding, sort of clinical sounding. It's the only term in the list, the only quality that doesn't have this soft, warm connotation. You know, the other that's love, joy, peace, flowers, kittens, rainbows. You know, it's just this very warm, fuzzy feeling. And and self-control isn't like that. When you think of self-control, you think of duty. You think of discipline. It feels more negative, almost. It's, It's less about what you do and more about what you don't do. So why is this quality even here? Why does Paul include this on his list. We're going to find out this morning, and the way I want to break it down is I want to look at the subject under three headings. So first is the secret to self-control. Second is the problems with self-control. And then lastly, I want to talk about self-control at its best. The secret to self-control, the problems with self-control, and self-control at its best. Those will be the three sections to this morning's sermon. We'll take them one at a time. So first, this, the secret to self-control. What's the trick to it? How, how do you do it? How do you have it? How do you say no to temptation? How do you make yourself do something that's hard and doesn't feel good? How do you stay on track toward becoming the person that you want to become instead of being pulled away by every desire or urge that, that rises up within you? Paul tells us in this morning's scripture reading that you just heard read, a very famous passage. And what he says is, you probably heard it, he says, uh, someone who competes in the games exercises self-control 
in all things. So that's what the passage is about. It's about self-control. That's what he's talking about. And the example he uses is an Olympic athlete. Someone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. That's the, the ultimate picture of self-control. So how do they do it? What's their secret? What Paul says is, well, it's pretty simple. The reason that they have so much self-control is because they want to win. Uh, more specifically, what he says is they want the prize, this, this crown of victory, the gold medal, the right to stand up there on the, the pedestal and this experience of the whole stadium going crazy, this feeling of being the best in the world at something, bragging rights from that day forward, the pride of that, the glory of that, all of that is the prize. And because they want the prize, Paul says, they have remarkable self-control in all things, in all areas of their life. So they eat just the right amount, not too much, not too little. They sleep just the right amount, not too much, not too little. They make themselves go through this grueling training regimen. They say no to all sorts of temptations. They say yes to sacrifice. They say yes to pain. They say yes to suffering. All because they want the prize. And they, okay, good example. You know, I, I see how that works. How does that show us the secret to self-control? How does that help us? Well, here's how. What Paul's saying here, it may seem obvious at first, but actually what he's doing is he's, he's trying to tell us that self-control comes from a totally different place than we think it comes from. Because the, the typical conception of self-control is to see it as this war, this battle between two different parts of yourself. So on the one hand, you've got your, your desires. You, you can think of that as your heart or your emotions, that, that part of yourself. And self-control, the way we normally think of it, is you're fighting that part of yourself, your heart, your desires, your emotions, with some other dispassionate, non-emotional part of yourself. So it's your desires versus your will, for instance, willpower. Or it's your desires versus your mind, your rationality, your reason, doing the smart thing, not doing what you feel like doing. Or it's your desires versus your conscience, doing the right thing, guilt stopping you and reining you in. That's how we think of self-control. And Paul says it's completely wrong. And as long as you think of self-control like that, you'll never have any and you'll never know why. What he says is it comes from somewhere else. And for the Olympic athlete, he uses them as the example. And he says, watch. Watch where they get it. How do they do this? You know, they want all these things that they don't pursue. So they want, let's say, a bowl of ice cream. And they say no. They want to skip their training that day. And they say no. They want to stay out late with friends. And they say no. They want all these things, and yet they refuse them. How? What Paul says is, it's because they want the prize more. They want the prize more. And want is the key word in that sentence. It's not willpower. They're not saying no out of willpower. They're not saying no out of guilt. They're not saying no out of conscience. They're not saying no out of reason. They're saying no out of desire. It's not desire versus mind, desire versus will, desire versus conscience. The only way to beat a desire. The only way to triumph over a desire is with another desire. 
Jonathan Edwards, uh, who we've talked about before on Sunday mornings, pastor in 18th century Massachusetts. And uh, he had a landmark book in the 1750s called Freedom of the Will, in which he takes hundreds of pages to say something that nobody believes anymore, but he's absolutely right, which is that human beings never do anything they don't want to do. People can only do, the only thing they can possibly do is the thing they most want to do in that given situation. Now, that thesis interacts very interestingly with our conception of self-control because we think of self-control as precisely the ability to do something you don't want to do. And Edwards is saying, that's impossible. Which, if he's right about that, would explain why you're having such a hard time doing it, if it's impossible. And you say, well, how could that be? How can it be that that people only do what they most want to do, or that nobody ever does something that they don't want to do? I mean, let's say you're walking home late at night, and uh, somebody, you know, puts a gun in your back, and they say, give me your wallet. And so, you do. You didn't want to give the person your wallet, but you did. And what Edwards would say is, well, no, you sort of did want to. Because even though part of you didn't want to lose your wallet, there was another part of you that didn't want to lose your life. And the desire to keep your life was stronger than the desire to keep your wallet. May the best want win. And it always will. The stronger desire always wins. The way that uh, Thomas Chalmers puts this, an old Scottish Puritan minister, and he has this line in his most famous sermon, it's become the most famous line in the most famous sermon, where he says, the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. In other words, if you want something, the fact that you want it is exactly that. It's a fact. You want it. And you can't change that fact just by trying to tell yourself to stop wanting it or that you shouldn't want it or that you should want something else. It doesn't work like that. The only way that you're ever going to stop wanting it is if you start wanting something else more. So that's the first section of the sermon. That's the secret to self-control. And the secret to it is getting rid of these ideas about strengthening your willpower or strengthening your conscience or being more reasonable against your desires and coming to see that the only way to fight a desire is with another desire. So now let's move on to section number two, the problems with self-control. And what I want to do in this second section is identify two problems, two ways that self-control can misfire, two ways it can go wrong and it can break. Uh, But before we, we get to what those two ways are, we need to clarify something, which is we, we need to clarify these two desires that are at odds in any self-control battle. We need to label what these two desires are. And here's what I mean by that. If you go back to the Olympic athlete, where they, they want two things, they want a bowl of ice cream and they want a gold medal. And if, if, they, if the desire for the gold medal wins out, then we call that self-control. If the desire for the bowl of ice cream wins out, we don't call that self-control. But my question is, why? You know, how do we label these two desires in the abstract? Which desire has to win in order for us to call it self-control? 
you know, you could say it's, self-control is when a good desire triumphs over a bad desire, but that's actually not right, because the desire for a bowl of ice cream isn't bad. You could say that self-control is when a self-serving desire is conquered by a noble desire, but that's not right either, because the desire for the gold medal is just as self-serving as the desire for the bowl of ice cream. So third possibility would, would be, you could say, it's when a goal desire triumphs over an urge desire. And, and now, there you're getting closer to what it really is. Because the best way of thinking about this, the best way of classifying these two desires and, and getting at what the real differentiating trait is between them is in terms of time horizon. One is always going to be a long-term desire. So the desire for the gold medal is the desire for the prize is the long term. It's in the future. The other is going to be always a short-term desire, you know, the desire for pleasure and comfort in the moment. Self-control is when the long-term desire wins. Now, I know that's sort of technical, and maybe that seems totally obvious, but it's necessary to, to set up these two problems that we need to talk about. So the first problem, the first way that self-control can go wrong and misfire and break is when your long-term desire is too weak when your long-term desire isn't strong enough. One of the interesting things about the way we've defined self-control is that what it shows us is that a person who lacks self-control lacks it for a totally different reason than we thought. A person who, who lacks self-control isn't someone whose willpower is weak. A person who lacks self-control is someone whose long-term desires are weak. Either they don't have any to begin with, they don't have any passion or goal that they're working toward, or whatever their goal or passion in the future is, their desire for it is very weak. And so it can't compete against the the short-term desires, which are stronger. Two reasons why that might be. Two reasons why your long-term desire might be weaker. The first is if it's indefinite, if it's hazy, if it's vague, if you don't have a clear picture of what it is and why you want it. And going back to the athlete, this is why coaches encourage visualization, where they make their athletes picture and make them imagine in, in actual detail, in sensory detail, what it would feel like and what it would look like to win. It has to be very specific, very definite, very tangible. They'll say, you know, imagine the confetti coming down on the field. Why? Why do they make them get so definite and tangible? It's because when the temptation presents itself, when there's that bowl of ice cream there, the bowl of ice cream is going to be very definite and very tangible. And you can see it. And when you see it, your body starts reacting to it physically right away. You start salivating. You can taste the richness of it. You can taste the sweetness of it. And so the only way that a long-term desire has any chance at all of competing against that is if your image of the richness and the sweetness of that long-term goal is every bit is detailed and every bit is real to you. If it's vague, if it's hazy, if you kind of want it, but you're not really sure why you want it, well, then the short-term desire is going to win every time. The other way that your long-term desires can be too weak to compete with the short-term desires. It's not if they're too hazy or indefinite, but if you doubt that they're really possible, if you doubt it can really happen. And what we're getting at here is the, uh, the Achilles heel 
of all long-term desires. They're their great weakness, which is that they don't pay out until the future. And sometimes it's the distant future. So that puts them at a pretty serious disadvantage with respect to short-term desires. Because the short-term desire is a sure thing. You know you can get it. But the long-term desire, if, if you start to waver and think, well, is it really even possible? Well, then it's going to be at a serious disadvantage. You know, thinking about the, the athlete, if they, if they think, well, is it even, you know, is this really going to happen? Once you start to say, you know, this was never going to happen anyway. This was a silly goal. I don't even know if this is real. I don't know, even know if this really could happen to me. Then all of a sudden the short-term desire wins. Because that, you know you can get. You know you can get the bowl of ice cream. That's a sure thing. And, and uh, even though, you know, so they want these two things. They want the gold medal. They want the bowl of ice cream. The gold medal is unquestionably better than the bowl of ice cream, but it's not positive. And so a lesser thing that you you're, know you can get ends up having more pull than a greater thing that you're kind of sh- sort of not sure about. One thing that all Olympic gold medal winners have had in common is they all truly believe they could do it. And what's fascinating about this, what we're getting at here is that one of the most essential ingredients to self-control is faith. There's there's no self-control at all without faith. You have to have this rock-solid belief that this thing you desire in the future is real and possible, or else you won't even be able to get off the ground with self-control. So that's the, the first big problem with self-control. The first way that it breaks or that it goes wrong is if your long-term desires are just too weak, either because they're indefinite or because you doubt that they're really possible, and so your short-term desires will win. But there's another problem. There's a, there's a second way that self-control goes wrong, and that is when not when your, your long-term desires are too weak. The second one is when your long-term desires are too low. So another interesting thing about the way we've defined self-control is that what, what it gets at is there's, there's actually self-control in and of itself isn't inherently good or bad because all it is is a means to an end. Self-control is just helping you get to your long-term goal, saying no to short-term desires along the way. But whether that's a good thing or a bad thing depends entirely upon the inherent worth, the inherent goodness, the inherent value of whatever you're seeking in the end. So, you know, to take an extreme example, if you think about like an evil dictator, they have remarkable self-control all in pursuit of this goal. They say no to all sorts of temptations, say no to all sorts of comforts, but their their goal in the end isn't good. Even, you know, just a a power-hungry politician, you know, this is Frank Underwood in House of Cards. Remarkable self-control, remarkable self-control, but all in pursuit of a goal it's not worthy. It's just about power for power's sake. It's just about self-aggrandizement. So is that type of self-control to that person's credit? Well, sort of. I mean, we sort of respect them for it. You know, we sort of respect the discipline and they can stay on track toward their goal. But at the end of the day, that sort of person may actually be worse off than a person who has no long-term desires or very weak long-term desires and just sits on the couch and eats chips and watches TV all day because at least that second person doesn't hurt anybody along the way. So that's an example of like a bad long-term desire where you want something that's, that's not even good. But you can, you can go down from there and talk about not something that's bad, but just something that you've set your heart upon as the ultimate 
goal. This is my ultimate prize, and I'm going to get use self-control to get it. And whatever that prize is that you've chosen is just too low. It's not something of ultimate value. So with the Olympic athletes, you know, we praise their self-control in pursuit of this gold medal. We honor it as noble. And we should. It is noble, and it is virtuous. But it's not always healthy. You know, your, your pursuit of this gold medal can be something that, that actually becomes morally corrosive. So you know, take the obvious example, Tanya Harding never thought she would do what she did. But her desire for this thing in the future was so strong that while it gave her self-control in some areas of her life, it actually weakened her self-control in other areas of her life, and it made her into a worse person, not a better person. Where am, I, where am I going with this? I want to bring this closer to home because we don't have any evil dictators or, or Olympic figure skaters in the room that I know of. Um, so coming to our context, in this town, a lot of people have remarkable self-control because there's something that they want very, very badly. And it's, it's not an indefinite desire. You know, they, they have a very clear picture of what it would look like and why it would be so good. It's not a desire that they doubt. They fully believe. They have 100% faith that they, they, they can get it. And what they want is they want a lot of money. And so they, they use self-control to say no to all sorts of temptations in their life, say no to all sorts of short-term desires, all sorts of short-term pleasures and comforts in pursuit of this long-term goal. But it's kind of like with, with the figure skater. It's, it's interesting because what it does is it gives you self-control that's kind of spotty. It gives you self-control in one area of your life, but not another. So, for, for instance, you may have this self-control to put in really long hours, but then you may not have the self-control to you know, not binge on the weekend, whatever it is, or not use uh, drugs or alcohol to cope with the pressure. You may have the self-control to be extremely meticulous with the accuracy of all the information you're working with. But then you give in to the temptation to, to lie, just outright lie, falsify, in order to protect yourself in this given area where you made a mistake. You may have the self-control to never cut corners at the office, to never cheat your company, but then you give in to the temptation to cut corners at home and to cheat your spouse and cheat your kids. Why? Why does it work like that? Because the thing you've set your heart upon is too low. It's not bad to want to make a lot of money, but when it occupies first place, when it's the thing of ultimate value that you want, yes, you're going to have self-control in some ways, but not in other ways. And are you really becoming a better person in the end? And when you get there, when self-control helps you to get what it is you most wanted, is it going to be satisfying in the end anyway? So those are the, that's the second section of the sermon. Those are the two problems with self-control, the two ways it can go wrong, which is in the first place, your long-term desires are just too weak, and so they can't compete. In the second place, your long-term desires are too low, and so your self-control is kind of spotty, or it just takes you to the wrong place faster. So now let's move on to the third and final section of the sermon, which is self-control at its best. And now that we know what those two problems with self-control are, it's pretty straightforward to reverse engineer it, to, to get at the best kind of self-control, to get at self-control that works for you across the board. You just need the, the opposite 
of those two things we just talked about. So instead of a long-term desire that's too weak for something that's not that great, what you need is to have a really strong long-term desire for something that's really good. If you want to put it in terms of superlatives, the greatest self-control will come from having the, the greatest possible, the strongest possible desire for the best possible thing. So what's the best possible thing? That's where our, our passage this morning comes back in, because Paul thinks he knows. He thinks he's found it. And he compares himself to these Olympic athletes. He says, look, you know, they, they do all this in pursuit of this crown. We've been talking about uh, in terms of a gold medal, because that's what it is in our context. But, but in his context, in his day and age, it wasn't a gold medal, it was a crown. And not a, not a gold crown, but, you know, you've seen pictures of this. It was a wreath, you know, a crown made of, of leaves in ancient Greece, the, the victor's crown. And Paul, is, is, he sort of makes fun of it. What he says is, look, I don't know if anybody's noticed, but the leaves die. You know, the, the crown fades. And this is true across the board. Every trophy turns to trash someday. You know, this, this thing that you wanted, this award, this prize, that was so important to you, someday it gets moved to a box in the attic, and then it gets moved to the dump. But Paul says, I know about a crown that doesn't fade. I know about a crown that doesn't wither. And so if they can have such remarkable self-control and pursuit of this crown that withers, how much more should I be able to have self-control in pursuit of a crown that doesn't? So what is it? What is this crown? He tells us in Philippians 3. We read these two passages together this morning, uh, 2 Corinthians 9 and 1 Corinthians 9 and, and Philippians 3, because they complete each other. And what he says in Philippians 3 is, I want to know Christ. And in case you've, you've missed the thesis thus far, the key word in that sentence is want. I want to know Christ. I want it. I want it so bad I can taste it. I want to be united to him. I want to be found in him. I want to be made like him. I want his death to be my death. I want his resurrection to be my resurrection. If I have to go through his sufferings, I'm fine with that so long as I can be resurrected like he was resurrected. I can be glorified like he was glorified. I can be honored by God like he was honored by God. I want it. That's what Paul says. And because he wants it, because he wants it so bad, he's able to have remarkable self-control, just like the Olympic athlete, to say no to all sorts of temptations, to say yes to all sorts of suffering and sacrifice, all because the thing that he's after and is pursuing just seems so much better to him. You know, he says at one point in Philippians 3, he says, I used to want all this other stuff, and all that other stuff I used to want seems worthless to me now by comparison. Uh, literally what it says, the actual, you know, you heard it in the, in the reading, it, he says, I consider all that other stuff garbage. And you, you may have, 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 you know, when you heard that rag, garbage, thing, I don't think I've ever heard the word garbage in the Bible before. And that's because you haven't. It's, this word only occurs one time in the entire Bible. And garbage is an incredibly sanitized translation. 
What it says in, in the King James in 1611 is, I consider all the rest of this dung. And if you look up at the word that's being translated there in, in a Greek lexicon, what it says is the excrement of animals. He's saying, I used to think all this other stuff was so great, and now I realize that it was all basically worth a pile of fill in the blank, with your word of choice. And what it is, is it, basically this is just the, the essence of what it means to mature. This is the essence of maturation as a human being. Is it's graduating from lower things to higher things. It's graduating from all this stuff you used to think was cool to realizing that it's really not that cool and you set your sights higher. You know, if you think about like a, a little kid, Kate, our two-year-old, she thinks M&Ms are really cool. And she thinks they're amazing. And she would do anything to get them. She would exert self-control to get them. So if I say to her, Kate, I will give you an M&M tomorrow if you stay in your bed all night. She will set her heart on that long-term desire, that long-term goal. And 12 hours is a really long time for a two-year-old. And say no to the short-term desire of getting out of her bed and dancing around and trying to make her sisters laugh and causing problems. But I love this because even for a two-year-old, it's just this straightforward value judgment. She says to herself, okay, I, I love to get out of my bed. I know that. That's cool. But an M&M is even cooler. And so I'll use my self-control generated by desire for this thing I want in the long term. But then as kids get older, it changes. And what you used to think was cool, you don't think is that cool anymore. So, you know, if for Reese, our six-year-old, if I tell her, you know, Reese, I'll give you an M&M if you stop making that annoying sound, she'll say, no, I'm pretty sure I want to keep making this annoying sound. <laughs> because it's just not that cool. An M&M isn't that cool to her anymore. And that's what it means to mature, is you realize the things you used to think were a big deal and were cool really aren't that cool, and you set your sights higher. It's the same way for an adult. You know, you've got this guy that he thinks it's cool to, to bring home a different girl every night. That's what he has set his heart upon. And he will exert self-control to get it. He will, he will go to great pains. He will arrange the rest of his life so that he can make that goal happen. And if he ever grows up, what he'll come to see is, you know, it's, it's really not that cool. It's actually kind of gross. It's kind of trashy. And he'll set his heart instead on a greater desire, on a greater goal, on marriage, on a real relationship. And if that greater long-term desire has gripped his heart, then it'll be easy to say no to the short-term temptations. It'll be easy to say no to the one night stands because he has this desire. He's grown up. And what Paul is asking us is, when are you going to grow up? When are you going to really grow up and not just go up one notch, not just graduate to a desire that's just marginally better than the old one? When are you going to wake up and realize that everything you've ever thought was cool and fun and shiny and satisfying, that it's all just trash compared to knowing Christ, to the riches 
of being found in him, to the untold compensations and blessings of following him, to the satisfaction that nothing else can compare to. Paul says, if you can see that, if you can see what that would be like, if you can just get the smallest glimpse of how good it would be, and it can only happen by the power of the Spirit, by the way. That's why this is one of the fruit of the Spirit. It's only by the Spirit's power that you'll ever see it. But Paul says, if by the Spirit's power you wake up and realize how good this would be, he says, then your desire for it will be so strong that all the rest of it, saying no to temptation, self-control, doing the right thing, it'll all take care of itself. Why? Because we only do what we want to do. May the best want win, and it always will. Self-control is not a matter of of being good. It's a matter of wanting something good and being willing to make any sacrifice to get it. Let's pray. God, we ask that by your Spirit you would give us self-control, not the fake self-control of willpower or conscience, the fake self-control of trying to do the right thing against our desires, but we ask that you would give us the true self-control, self-control that only you can give, the self-control that comes from wanting something better and bigger and greater in the long term, and thinking of sacrificing to get that as, as nothing because it's that good. We know that our understanding of how good it would be to truly be united with you to be living as you would have us to live. Our understanding of it is so limited. Our understanding of how valuable that crown is falls so short of the reality. So we ask that you would do what you did for Paul, that you would speak it into our hearts, that by your Spirit you would show us what it's really like, and it would grip us and control us. I pray these things in Jesus' name.